This episode is dedicated to Thule, Gareth's bush dog, loyal companion, friend and sharer of many adventures. As you will hear in this episode, Thule joined in and made her presence well known throughout the interview. She sadly passed away a few weeks after this episode was recorded and will be sorely missed. So this one is for you, precious Thule. You're listening to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. We share uplifting stories from people all over the world working to change our planet for the better. I'm Joy and this week we speak to Gareth Patterson, a passionate protector of African lions, elephants and other beings. We cover some of his surreal experiences in the wilds of Africa, the story of his latest published children's book, Born to be Free, the latest on the sequel to Gareth's book about the famous secret Nisner elephants, and a vision for African environmentalism. As you listen, you will also consistently hear Bushdog Thule's grunts and sniffles. Thule was trying very hard to provide a soundtrack to help the listeners feel like they're in the bush themselves. So do play along, if just for Thule. As always, follow along or jump ahead using the show notes on our website at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Gareth, thank you so much for having Joy and I here in your beautiful cottage on the outskirts of the Nisner Forest. This is absolutely stunning and we are so excited to chat to you. Could you tell us where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in the UK, in the southeast of uh, the UK, and my parents um, took me out to Nigeria when I was very, very young, when I was about, um, I think, about 18 months old. And for the majority of my, my childhood, I grew up in, um, in, in Nigeria and Malawi and a little bit of Botswana. And very interesting because it was post-independent um, uh, um, Nigeria and Malawi. Um, so if you if you have a look in my autobiography and you look at in my lion's heart and you look at the school picture there, um, you can just see like there's a couple maybe a couple of white faces. The rest is brown or black or whatever. So I I grew up not knowing you know the colour story like they had in South Africa. That's why it was a shock when I came down here at the age of 17. Um, this was all new to me. I mean, that was back in the apartheid era and that was quite a shock to the system, yeah. So we grew up, um, you know, from the mangrove swamps in Nigeria to sub-Saharan Africa and then Malawi. I mean, that's the, that's the warm heart of Africa, as they call it, and it was a fantastic place to grow up, you know, just spending time out in the mountains. My, my great love at that time was snakes as well as lions, and as an amateur uh, herbithologist gave my mother grey hairs at a very young age. <laughs> Snakes at home? Yeah, exactly. She picking up the laundry in my in my room. And socks, long socks are a very good place to keep snakes temporarily. You just tie a knot, you put them in there and then reverse it like this. So now the snake is inside, you tie a knot in just, just for a temporary you know, thing. But uh, unfortunately she would. And sometimes I used to use the laundry basket, if I remember, to put snakes in there for a temporary thing. So, so practical. So picking up the socks and now the sock starts moving in a hand. Um, or going opening the laundry basket and anyway. Well, to be fair, she did bring her son to Africa, so. Yeah. So can you, without going into too much detail, because you've had an amazing career in conservation, can you give us a, an overview, a brief overview of of how that started to the point where you are now today? Started very young when when I was um, about seventeen years old as a young trainee ranger stroke guide in South Africa for a very, very short, well, that was a reasonably short 
short time, but then I went on to work for the Wilderness Leadership School, doing environmental education in the in the in the Drakensberg. And that was with the legendary conservationist Ian Player, Dr. Ian Player. So that was an interesting period for a year, but very very quickly I found myself back in um, back in back in um, Botswana and um, in a wonderful area called the Tuli Bushlands, never imagining that in the years ahead I'd be rehabilitating George Adamson's uh, Last Three Lions there. And yeah, I was very much encouraged to learn about this lion population um, because it was, it was a population that wasn't habituated to people. Ecotourism was just starting there. The lions were very, very shy because they'd been persecuted for years. So my role was to try and get to know the lions. So I started an observer study, which I think went on for about three years. And it had enormous highs, but also enormous lows. The highs were getting to know lions like I did then through behavior and getting to know individual lions. I mean, there was lions like a, a lion I called uh, Kidaki. And he, he was like my lion father. He, a strange bond uh, connected between the two of us. It was extraordinary. He'd get very close to the vehicle, sometimes just laying down um, in, in, in the shade of the vehicle. Um, but on the, on the downsides was that it, it first made me look at the status of the lion in Africa. So this was close on 30 odd years ago. And at that stage, they thought there was about 250,000 lions in Africa. And I could see that this 2D population was in trouble. Uh, because of trophy hunting illegally being lured out of the area into South Africa across the dry Limpopo River, snaring. And so the population that I established, what I estimated to be about close on 60 lions, within three and a half years was down to about 30. And, and that's when I really started thinking, you know, this is not an isolated problem. Mm. This is probably happening throughout Africa. And that set me off on a 20, after I wrote a book about that population, that set me off on a, uh, on a journey of 25,000 kilometers around the whole of Southern Africa, looking at the status of the line um, in contemporary Africa, you know, and that furthered my suspicions that the lion is in trouble. Now, this is like 30, 25 years ago. And when I started speaking up for the lion back then, your conventional conservationists were saying, what is this young guy talking about? You know, there's no problem with the lions. Lions breed like rabbits, da 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 da, da. And look at the situation today. You know, we've lost 90% of our lion population. We estimate that there's probably only 15, uh, the experts, you know, the next generation of the people who criticized me for speaking out for the lion are now recognizing that we've only got, sadly, tragically, about fifteen to 20,000 lions in the whole of Africa. Uh. Now, I use the analogy, if you take, I mean, it's World Cup time at the moment, if you take a really massive stadium, it can hold 100,000 people plus mm. or whatever. Now, you imagine if that stadium's only got 20,000 people and each lion is represented by a person, well, each person represents a lion, you can see what a handful, see how serious it is. when you think how massive yeah. Africa is and the former range of the line. So that was the spark that put you into this 25 year journey covering lions. And then after the lions, I know you've been involved in, and we'll get into this more later, but the knives and elephants, and that's what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, just taking a little step back in that interim period, when I was finishing that journey around Southern Africa, I sent a copy of my first book to, to the legendary lion man of Africa, George Adamson. 
never imagining that he would receive the book or read it or invite me as he did to go and visit him, which I actually did at the end of the journey. And that was, that was quite an experience because I think for the first time in my life, I was actually speaking to someone who actually spoke the same language as me as our concern for the lion. George knew then that the African lion was in trouble. He could see it in his own situation there at Cora and Meru and everywhere else he, he had been and been around for such a long time. I mean, George was 80, 82 then, you know, so he'd seen, he'd had that long experience in wildlife to see what was happening in Kenya and Tanzania with the lion and not forgetting where he lived in Kenya, in the Kora National Park, National Reserve as it was then. He saw the extinction in his time, over 20 years there or whatever it was, he saw the extinction of black rhino, leopard, because of the fashions in, in the 60s and 70s mm. of having leopards. So he, he witnessed it. And when I was with him there, we were, we were witnessing the extinction of African elephant in that area. I didn't see one adult female elephant in that area apart from dead ones. I saw the spore, the tracks of a boar, but the rest of the population there, they were just confused youngsters because that's all what's left. Didn't have leadership. Yeah, yeah, didn't have leadership. So that was the elephant holocaust of the late um, 80s that we were witnessing there. So George witnessed the black rhino, basically elephant and leopard and lion on the way out. And then never imagining that a year later, George was going to be murdered by the very people slaughtering his last elephants in that area. And, um, and then there was the question of the three cubs of his, Batty and Ferrara and Rafiki. And it looked as though they were facing a lifetime in captivity because the park was closing down for security reasons. And I came up with an idea, contacted Dr. Richard Leakey, who was the head of the Kenya Wildlife Service at the time, to say, let me rescue these lions and relocate them to this lion area in Botswana that I know very well. And uh, you know, I will attempt to rehabilitate them back into the wild. And uh, that's what we did. But to to organize logistically that sort of thing and to transport three lions from one very isolated uh, reserve in East Africa to in Southern Africa. Yeah, it wasn't the easiest undertaking, but we did it and we all survived. I don't know after the journey who was more exhausted than me or the lions. <laughs> it was doing quite an adventure. And they'd be tranquilized a couple of times. And I think I, and I, think I still felt more um, tired out than them. And then a whole you know, how adventures started on from there. And, and the upside is they, they integrated fantastically well. They established territory. Uh, the two females, they found mates of males outside our territory. Uh, Batty and the male, he sired cubs. And then we had the tragedies of Batty and being killed and all this sort of stuff. But overall, yeah, there's descendants of those lions still out there. And that is all covered in your book. In yeah. My Lion's Heart, I remember reading all about that. Was that was covered in My Lion's Heart, and it was covered before in the two books about the Adamson Lions, which was Last of the Free, mm -hmm. and With My Soul Amongst Lions, yeah. yeah wow. And the children's book, of course. Yes. Yeah. Which, which is just based on the three... On the three lions, yeah. yeah. We've both read My Lion's Heart a while ago. Absolutely loved the book. Brought me to tears. Incredibly moving and sad. Also part of the inspiration for Sustainable Jungle can actually be credited with a paragraph that you wrote in that book about the challenge to the youth. And thank you, first of all, for that inspiration, Gareth. 
But I wonder if you can tell us what, what has been your inspiration for caring about the lions, for caring about the elephants, for working in this area for so many years? I think, you know, that childhood love of, of wild animals, seeing my first lion um, was very instrumental in things. And that was in Nigeria where lions were never abundant in modern times in the past, yes, but in, in, in modern times not. They've always been in trouble. There's probably in, in the whole country about 20 or 30 today. And as a, as a child of, I don't know what I was, about seven or maybe a little bit older, in the Yankari Game Reserve, we were out on a game drive on a big truck and lions weren't seen often. And then suddenly I just spotted, I think it was a male and female, crouched down, um, bit of a distance away and I called to the adults I said lion look look lions and they thought no this is just a childish game or whatever until one of the adults saw it and then the vehicle just it was a truck and it lurched to a stop and then everyone was pointing and that was too much for the lions and they ran and it was almost without being too fanciful it was almost as if a part of me and that little boy ran with them I could just feel spiritually I was going with them and about a year later, my, my parents had divorced and my father was in the UK at the time, my mother in, in Nigeria. And the contrast of that wild, that wild and free, loose and very graceful Nigerian lions running away. My father took me to a, a local zoo in the UK and it was an overcast day, it was drizzly, it was a bad zoo on top of it. Mm. And we came to the lion enclosure and in this lion enclosure an artist had obviously didn't know much about lions because he drew on on the cement wall he had painted this like king of the jungle scene as a as a backdrop for the lion's cage inside the lion's cage so it was all jungle scenes and 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 it was drizzling and i just remember this old male lion in contrast to that golden form running away in yankari there was this drenched old lion, his mane was dripping over his face and he, he wasn't the real thing. He was like a zombie lion. So I think that those two impressions, those two images had a big impression on me. I knew where the lion should be and that's wild and free and not stuck in a little cage in a foreign land. Such a formative moment in your, in I your think youth. So. And something that we love to ask wildlife professionals, if you can recall one or two of your most memorable moments. There's been many. I can imagine there's hundreds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's been a few. Okay. <laughs> but, but when I was rehabilitating George's lions and Batian the male, he was reaching sort of young adulthood. And they'd established, you know, that was the most important thing for them is to establish territory. You can't just take three lions and put them in the bush and you know because there's other lions with their territories there I had to find an area where they ironically because of poaching there was a vacuum I knew because I knew that area of lions and I knew my lions could fill that niche so they weren't going to be intruding in other lions territories uh, they would have territorial fights that's just normal but I wasn't plonking my lions unknowingly into another pride's territory so my lions established Territory. I think the territory was about 72 square kilometers in the end that sure. they were defending. Um, early encounters with young lions trying to move into our territory were quite extraordinary. I remember on the one occasion coming across my lions fighting for other lions and I saw this and I called to them and they regrouped with me, they greeted me 
and then we just charged those four lines. You charged with them? Yeah, of course. I charged <laughs> of course. I, I, I charged with them. As you do. And I figured, well, first of all, those four lions must have thought this is a very strange sight that there's, they're fighting three lions and there's a man amongst them chasing them away. <laughs> and I figured, now what if someone was watching, say if one of the commercial game lodges were on a game drive up on the hill oh to see this, of this, this, these four... Literally Tarzan of the bush. Yeah, yeah. running, <laughs> chasing them out. These lions must have looked at you thought I, you were crazy. I ran for quite a distance, but then I stopped because I saw that these, these I mean, it was a little bit unfair on those lions because I mean, they've got a natural fear of human beings. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're having a bit of a dodgy morning having this fight with my lines. And they're, <laughs> then their worst enemy arrived. <laughs> so I actually didn't have to run the whole way, but my lines did. And eventually they came back and they were so proud of themselves Aww. that they actually stayed in that area for the next day and a half. But in terms of memorable moments was around about that time and walking with uh, Batian and he was he was turning into one of the biggest lions that that area would ever see. I mean, at three, it was very big. And Rafiki was with us and we were going along. It was early in the morning and the sun had just risen. And then Batian had, hadn't done territorial calling before. And this was the very first time. And we were walking along and then suddenly, I, I just happened to have my hand on his shoulder. And all of a sudden he started, Oh, I love that sound. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that was a fantastic moment and linked us up with George, you know, because it's like they've done it. They've established their territory. Uh, this is their domain. They are wild free lions now, even though they were, they were raised because they were human, you know, they were made orphans because of humans. And by by Batian having the courage to call meant he belonged. Who is lord of this land? I am, I am, I am. That's in, in one of the dialects in Kenya. That's what it, the lion's call means. You know, I grew up in Johannesburg right near the Lion Park and in the early mornings, the sound would travel far, really far, because we were five kilometers or something like that from the Lion Park. And you could hear that at like five in the morning, you could mm. hear that noise. So my whole childhood, I could you hear could, this you lion could hear noise. Them. Where were you, near Chartwell? In Chartwell. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so that's, that was my whole childhood, listening yeah. to that noise growing up. So yeah. it's a very comforting it's such, sound. It is such a memorable sound. Yeah. It really is, yeah. Now, before we keep going, we are, we are not playing lion sound effects. This is Tuli, who is helping us with the interview. You can hear her Snuffling. making a few snuffles and grunts because she is a human dog and she wants to be part of the interview. So that's what that noise is. Gareth, we wanted to chat a little bit about some of the biggest projects that you're working on at the moment. Mm. And the first one was the lions, obviously. Mm. And you've already talked about Rafiki Ferrara and Bastian. And we, we understand that you've just published a children's book mm. about these three cubs. Mm. So maybe you could tell us a little, give us an overview of the story and the premise for the book. It's been a fantastic project because just over a year ago, I was sorting through some boxes that I hadn't looked in for ages and about 25 years ago when I was living as a human member of the Pride I would actually write no I was actually writing a children's book yeah. I don't know why I was writing a children's book because my books before that had been for mainstream reading but when I was sitting with the lions in the bush I was writing a children's book and I would give the notes I'd give the story to my girlfriend at the time who was doing the project with me Julie and she would type them out. 
And I think she did about 10 pages, or I did about 10 pages, and life just took over, it was a very busy time, forgot about this children's book, until about just over a year ago. And, and I was going through boxes, and I thought the original manuscript might have been lost or destroyed or whatever. And I find this manuscript called A Lion's Tale. And when I was writing the book, I wasn't writing it from my perspective. It was being narrated by Adamson Lioness Rafiki. And so I find this 25, 30 years later or whatever, and I figured, you know, I, I must finish this book. And I read, read through it, and I thought, well, you know, am I gonna find her voice after a decade, you know, two decades? Somehow I, I did. And I figured, well, I'm just going to send this to a very reputable publisher. The you know, first one that came to mind was Chicana Media, and I sent it to them. And they loved it. They snapped it up. We started working on it. And, um, and the lovely thing is, is that I obviously had hundreds, thousands, if not slides, original photos of the lines from back in those days. So it's quite unusual because it's a true story, and it's narrated by a real-life lioness. So it's not my voice but it's illustrated by real life photos. So yeah. when it's Rafiki gave birth to cubs, I mean, there is Rafiki with her newborn cubs or they've made a kill, that's them on the kill. There's actual photos. It was a complete breakaway from any book that I've done before. So it was very, very refreshing. And I must admit it came quite easy and, and I want to write more of these sort of books. There's the, we were talking about Thule earlier. There's a book in her. There's certainly a book in the, in the Neisner Elephants for children. There can be a sequel to Born to be Free, the children's book. And so what age group is it? It's interesting. I, I mean, I wrote it, what I thought I was writing for, seven to perhaps 10-year-olds. But when people started reviewing it, they were also talking about young adults. And when I people are contacting me, emailing me or on Facebook, I'm finding that it's... Obviously, I'm not hearing from the little ones. I'm hearing from the parents and the grandparents. More often than not, they're saying they're buying it for, first for themselves to read, and then they'll give it to the grandchildren <laughs> or read it to the grandchildren or That's whatever. So, nice. so that is, yeah, so I, I'm just really surprised. And it's only been out about a month. So the reception has been really, really positive. I'm, I'm just delighted. I wanted to ask you specifically about the one story that I remember very clearly about Rafiki, which was the story of where she came and found you and led her to her newborn cubs. And that for me was just such an emotional story. And I, I watched the YouTube video again mm. yesterday about it. And I just thought, wow, that must have been such an amazing experience. And I wanted to ask you, what did that feel like in that moment? That was another incredible moment. And a number of months prior to that, she fell pregnant for the very first time. And she arrived at the camp and I could see that she, she was in the early stages of actually giving birth. And I was a bit worried by what I was seeing. Something looked a bit unusual about her and I thought she was miscarrying. Then the next day she arrived and she, she'd definitely given birth and she looked fine. And it was in the evening. And she wanted me and Batian to follow. And we, we couldn't, well I couldn't, because I mean I don't have the vision of a lion at night, you know. And then she just stayed at the camp, on the outside of the camp, with Batian. And at the very first light, we, she started calling us, ooh, ooh, and they do this tail flicking. I mean, it's, it's too human-like to say she's saying, come on, come on. But that's what it looks like. <laughs> this tail goes like this over their heads, go on, when they're moving together. And 
we followed her, not knowing what to expect. And I figured, well, if she's given birth to cubs, that's she stayed with us for more than twelve hours. If she's just given birth, that's unusual because they stay with the cubs. Yeah, they need a feed for about two, three days, and then then she might leave them for a while. And as they grow older, she might leave them for a day and a half or whatever. But straight after birth, I, I didn't know what was going on. Batia and I followed her, and she recounts this in the book, and how she led us up a, a rocky area and into this sheltered nursery site. And she, in the book, is saying how Batian first went in and saw she'd somehow managed to put her, her she gave birth to one cub, and it was it was a stillborn cub, Aww. and she put the put the cub on top of her both paws. She must have picked it up and put it on her paws, because that when I went in after Batian, that's how she was standing. I mean, sitting Shame. with this tiny little cub on her paws. And then it's not uncommon for um, a very extremely young lioness to have a stillborn, but they will very quickly come into estrus again. And that's what happened with Rafiki. And I could see both her and her sister were pregnant. And uh, we knew the day was coming. And they were wild lions by then, but she would occasionally come to the camp to drink water or whatever, or to see say me. Say hi. <laughs> yeah, to say hi. And she'd been away a couple of days. And then I just heard the lapping of water near the camp. And I could see it with Rafiki, and I could see she was no longer pregnant. And I stepped out of the gate, and we, we greeted each other. She was very enthusiastic. And I followed her. And her nursery site was incredibly well protected with buffalo thorn uh, trees around the edge of a stream bed. And she led me to it, and then she went inside. And then I could see these newborn cubs, as you saw in that video, and the eyes were still closed at that time, so they were just days old. But she would deliberately use me as a babysitter. The first time it happened, she, she left the cubs, came up to me, and then walked away without calling me. And I figured maybe she's just, you know, she's got to do a business here or whatever, and she's coming back. Except she didn't. And I thought, well, how far does my responsibilities have <laughs> yeah, to go how long here? Do you have to... And it was an it was an exceptional morning because I sat there for quite a long time, and suddenly I heard something on top of a of a quite a large hill, and I saw this ostrich bombing along, top of this, followed by Rafiki tearing <laughs> after it. And I thought, I've never seen them go after ostrich. And then a few minutes later, I heard something up there. And now the ostrich is going in the opposite direction with Rafiki going after it. Oh, my gosh. She's, but, Comedic. You know, yeah, it was. And then she came back and all the rest of it. So another time, I mean, you worried about leopard. I mean, it's a natural thing. They're competitors, lions and leopards. Leopards will kill lion cubs. Lions will kill leopard That's a, if they get an opportunity. That's just the way it is with these predators. And one day... When the cubs were still quite young, I, um, I was heading to the nursery site to see Rafiki and suddenly I heard something above me and it was a leopard. But I think she had treed it earlier. She had gone after it, she had sensed it and it just went up there for, for safety's sake. And, and then next thing, uh, just like the story of when chasing the lions, the worst enemy arrives now mankind, now, now along comes Gareth. And this leopard's having a bad day. <laughs> so he and I shouted at it and I gave it such a shock. It hit the ground and then stumbled before running away. And then I figured, well, that one won't be coming back. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ferrara gave birth to her cubs. 
same thing she led me to them and then eventually Ferrara and Rafiki naturally wanted to introduce their little ones to the rest of their pride which was me and Batian and Julie Cute. so then they brought the cubs to the camp and Batian and I were there on the outside of the camp fence and uh, the cubs stayed behind and just sat on those boughs of old leadwood trees in the background there, just peeking out there. And then me and Batty and greeting the, um, the, the two sisters and Julie behind the fence because she never had direct contact with the light and her face was just beaming. Aww. And Rafiki ends the book by saying, our pride is all together again. And I think the old man, George, who we love so much, would have been very, very proud. Aww. And that's the end of the story. That's such Beautiful. a nice story. Wow. Yeah. That's very, very heartwarming. It is. And it's all true. <laughs> and it's all true. That's the amazing thing. It's yeah, all true. Yeah, incredible wow. story. Yeah. Sure. So another one of your significant projects, Gareth, has been on the Nasna elephants, mm. which I understand you've been researching and writing about since 2001. I wonder, just for the benefit of the listeners and anybody who might be watching, can you give us an overview of what that story entails? I always had an interest in these elephants here, these legendary, uh, mythical, almost mythical people would describe them as elephants that live on the southern tip of Africa, where they're a miracle that they even exist. The authorities that the area f fell under um, forestry department, they didn't have a very positive attitude towards the elephants, and they felt that there was only one elephant left, an old female, so therefore they were terming it as a functionally extinct population. And I looked at the expanse of this place, and knowing elephants as grey ghosts in savannah alone, that you don't need much foliage or vegetation to hide a being that is four, five, six tons or whatever. They are like grey ghosts, they are so silent. And here, just in the forest, you've got over 600 square kilometers of dense forest. But more so in the Fainbos, they're actually more mountain Fainbos elephants than, than forest elephants. And that total area, I mean, it just goes on forever until you get to the Karoo. I mean, it's a massive, unfenced area. A great portion of it is National Park today, which is a new national park, the Garden Route National Park. So I just looked at this vegetation and I thought there's one thing for certain, is that no one can be for certain about the number of elephants here. It's just impossible. It's very dangerous to declare a species or a subspecies extinct. Because as soon as you do that, you're not going to do anything to try and conserve something which, you're, which you think is gone. Yeah. Mm. So I didn't come down here two years later to try and prove anything, anybody wrong. If I had spent seven years out there and covered all those, you know, 20, 30,000 kilometers or whatever on foot. If the outcome was there was only one, only came across signs of a, I've got to be objective, you know, I'm not helping anything if I'm not objective. If, there, if I discovered there was only one, that would have been my result. And then I would have been rattling the cages with the authorities say, well, what are we going to do about it? But I didn't have to. That's why it's, it's been such a, a brilliant project in the sense that the field work combined with groundbreaking DNA work at the time, because it was brand new DNA work at the time, that you can sense as cryptic 
um, populations of animals through the droppings or whatever. And the first time we did the censoring with my colleague in, in the States, Laurie Eggert, conservation geneticist, I think the results came out in 2005, I think it was, showed that there was five individual young adult female elephants. But we knew there were balls, at least three balls from field work. I mean, a, a ball spore so much larger than an adult um, female elephant. And then we're coming across tiny little spore like this, where we obviously knew that Babies. there's calves. We knew it's, you know, it's not like there's the immaculate conception happening out there. And what cemented it was a few years later, 2007, I did the DNA work again. First time round, I think I collected about 35 samples. Second time, I think I collected about 70 odd samples. Sent them off to Laurie. And she got back to me and it was, it was actually great news. We didn't get any balls again, but she got, after all those years, after you know three, uh, three years later or whatever, she found the existence of the same five females, which was wonderful to know they're still out there, but on top of it, a sixth female, Amazing. which we missed the first time round. I mean, goodness knows how many others we might have missed. Yeah. These elephants range, it's huge. I mean, over a thousand plus square kilometers. Wow. So it's very likely we've lost others. Well, we know we did mm. because we didn't get the balls the second time round again. So it was very, very optimistic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very positive about it. Uh, sometimes the authorities will fall back into the old habit of saying, yeah, no, we're only finding one or only photographing one. But I, that's pretty much uh, water off the duck's back with me because these elephants brought themselves back from the brink when there was so much negative attitude towards them. And quietly the elephants got on with it and they brought the, the DNA proved that they brought themselves back from the brink. And I'm just very confident in these elephants and in the habitat that hides them because it's not just the forest that hides them, the, the, the mountain famboss which is sometimes 11 or 12 feet high, is actually far denser than the forest. Because this climax stage of Bainbos is really, really tall. And walking on their secret pathways there, it's almost more daunting than walking on their pathways in the forest, because you've actually got less vis visibility really? in some of those really, really dense. You, it's like being in a maze, because elephant pathway is only about <coughs> a meter wide. Elephants are actually, I'm not saying elephants are only a meter in width, but that's the way they walk and they're brushing their, veget their, their, their bodies against the vegetation. But they are an optical illusion. They're terribly tall, but they're not actually that terribly wide when you look at them. Yeah, so I, I'm pretty confident that, you know, they're fine. Because of the conditions, you're not going to have people, I mean, we're losing, what, 15 elephants a day or whatever in the rest of Africa or something crazy, what the figures are here. It's it just like a unique thing for them to be able to hide, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And they've got it. Let's keep the math simple. And let's just say there's only 10 elephants. And I know because their range is seemingly they're recolonizing or moving over bigger areas year by year by year. And it's unfenced. And say that range is over a thousand square kilometers. That's one elephant per hundred square kilometers. That's so, I mean, the chances of, of actually finding quantifying them, them or photographing them. I deliberately was not on a mission to track these elephants and to photograph them. Half the time, I didn't even have a camera with me. I mean, that was back in the day when cell phones didn't even have cameras. 
that was never my mission because they've been hunted enough. The sequel yeah. to The Secret Elephants. Can you give yeah. us a little overview of what that's about? I believe you're fundraising for that at the moment. I'm fundraising for that at the moment. It's very, very exciting. I mean, The Secret Elephant came out 10 years ago and it's, it's the longest that my, one of my books has stayed in print. I think it is. That it's 10 years. It's just gone into its fifth imprint and, and it's just kept going. We made a documentary at the same time called The Search for the Neisner Elephant, produced by a, a local production company with Animal Planet. That film has been screened consistently over the last 10 years. So yeah, this was a long-term project. I mean, 18 years later, I'm, 17 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> Though not technically, formally doing research, I'm doing my thing. I mean, the, the main bulk of it was that first seven, eight years. Um, but I'm still here and I still feel like a child to the place. I feel I, what I know is the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on here. And so this Beyond the Secret Elephants is a fantastic project because I not only update on what's been happening over the last 10 years, but also lots of other things that have been happening here and uh, other mysterious beings out there that I discovered, which I won't be revealing. Yeah, it's just going to be a surprise. <laughs> you have to get the book when it that's, comes up. That's the taster. It's going to take a lot of people by surprise and it's quite groundbreaking. So, How exciting. Yeah, it is very, very exciting. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. We and are you going to be doing updated DNA tests and things like that? As part of the I don't know if we're going to be doing the updated DNA. Maybe, but with the, with the crowdfunding, using the fundraising platform called BackerBuddy, here in South Africa. And I started it a couple of weeks ago. Terribly slow start. Um, I don't know what I'm doing wrong at the moment, but we hope to rectify it. Um, because these things cost money. And the first time round, that seven, eight years, well, in fact, all of my work has been self-funded. But this time, I'm not going to try and self-fund it. It's just impossible. Yeah, you've so, got to get some help yeah, with it. Get yeah. people to help with this one. But it's tremendously exciting. And um, like I say, these other mysterious... People think the Neisner elephants are mysterious. Well, just you wait. <laughs> watch this space. <laughs> How exciting. Watch this space. You have so many interesting projects on the go. The other one that you have is Sakai Africa. Mm. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what it is and why it's important to you? To me, in terms of the, the broad picture of looking at what is going to save Africa, Africa's wildlife and African environment, are the oldest environmentalists, form of environmentalism in, in the world. Humankind evolved in Africa. And humankind, um, Homo sapien, populated the whole world out of Africa. Africans were the very first environmentalists, but not going back 300,000 years. I'm talking about tens of thousands of years up until uh, colonization. There was a strong form of environmentalism in Africa. No coincidence that when the settlers to South Africa came here from Europe, the place was teeming with animals. Now that wasn't purely because of the lack of firearms and all the rest of it. It was a different outlook that the indigenous people had. And it's, a, it's an outlook which is a, a big respect for life and not just attributing souls to humans which is a biblical Christo-Judo thinking, you know, that we, you know, that we're at right at the top there and everything falls underneath us. 
that in in first people religion culture all over the world whether it's south america or aborigines in australia native people in um, north america there's there was this universal environmentalism that revered other life sure we'll kill it to survive but we're only going to take so much or whatever whatever you need yeah. yeah but respect for all life and attributing some kind of spirit or a soul to to be it a plant or even a stone or a flower or whatever and that that respect for life enabled there to be true sustainability between mankind and the rest of of nature and i'm not saying that we should go back into the past we can't go back into the past but we can use the best from the past in terms of ethics and morals and outlook towards other forms of life and adapt other stuff from the past which might not fit in with our modern day thinking or it's just not practical anymore but we can adapt it um, to have a, a truly afrocentric um, form of uh, of environmentalism I love that. Yeah. On the Sakai Africa website, there's this very interesting quote, which I wanted to read to the audience. It goes, humankind needs to reignite the reverence and respect for the environment. It needs to expel notions of superiority and entitlement and regain the African beliefs that historically governed relationships between man and animal. This is why the revival of African environmentalism is so relevant today. So I wanted to ask you, why do you think that it's so critical for humankind to reignite this reverence and respect for the environment? Because what we've got to recognize is that the trade in ivory, the demand for hardwoods in Africa, rhino horn, the eastern demand now for lion bone wine, now the, now the tiger is only a couple of thousand left, now they're, they're using lion bones for this, for this fake fake medicine or whatever you'd like to call it. Trophy hunting itself, all these are foreign demands on Africa. Here we didn't hunt purely for so-called recreation or sport. The same with the ivory. All, all of these demands are external demands. We never wanted all this stuff. It wasn't an internal demand. It's all external. You know, it's just a case, put it very, very bluntly, you know, whether it's, whether it's a couple of hundred years ago with, with colonization or, t or to this day, Africa continues to be raped and its people and its animals are left poorer. And that's why, you know, Sakai, it's, it's, it's so essential. I won't give up on Sakai because when I go through... Um, so much of the, you know, so much of the conservation thinking still to this day in, in Africa is still pretty Eurocentric, mm. you know, particularly when you've got, for example, the, the, the trophy hunter stroke conservationists who are saying, oh, the money from trophy hunting is going back to help the communities. And then we work out with, you know, accountants and every, accounting firms looking at things and saying, well, the local people are actually getting very, very little out of this mm. whole thing. It's a token. That's, a, that's another kind of form of colonial patronizing. There's great work ha happening all over the place, but we do, need to, we do need to recognize the importance of African environmentalism Absolutely. beyond all this other good stuff that's going on.
Lal and I actually, we were just in Namibia a couple of weeks ago mm. and we had a wonderful time going up to Atosha and then driving across the country. And while we were there, we learned a little bit about the conservancy approach to mm. wildlife management that they use in Namibia. And we understand it's been exceptionally successful and it's been growing populations all over the place and you know, largely seen as a success story. Mm. Are there parallels between the Sakai sort of thinking and the Namibian conservancy approach or is it quite different? I think that there might be some parallels in the sense that it, it is empowering the people, but I'm not sure if the spiritual aspect of Sakai is really a, a part of that. I mean, I was very upset uh, last, last week or this week, whenever it was, with another one of the desert lions mm. being, being killed for killing cattle. And then you've got like the government's response when the animal welfareists and animal writers went up in arms and said you know this is a terrible why and and then the government is saying yeah but you don't understand the men on the, on the people on the ground here they're losing their cattle that's devastating to them you know we should we shouldn't we know the importance of tourism but um but the importance of our own people is 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 very important more important than that and despite knowing how much tourism to me it it hasn't found a balance, if you know what I mean. There's too many people's backs are up. And if something like Sakai could act as... If Sakai... This just come to me. If Sakai could become, in philosophy, the Nelson Mandela of conservation, <laughs> whereupon, doesn't matter where you come from, what's your background, you, you, I mean, we were just so taken up and still am with the, with the outlook and, 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 and how fantastic that man was in terms of reconciliation. That's what we need, that's basically what I'm saying. We need reconciliation between uh, the external conservationist outlook and the indigenous. Um, yeah. It's quite a complicated thing. But Super complex. You, but you need a rainbow nation of, of, of thinking with conservation in Africa that includes everyone. Because at the moment, African conservationists is still out on a limb. In, in many places in Africa, African environmentalism does still exist, that people of a certain clan or tribe or whatever, they would always have an animal species, which is their sacred animal, just like the in North America with the Native American people, that they would have a totem animal, their spiritual animal. That still is alive and well. I've taken kids from, from, from Soweto into the bush and they've never been in the bush before. And we start talking about totem systems and they grew up in this, in this Soweto environment. And they say, yeah, no, we still have it actually. Yeah, yeah, modern kids, you know, who, you're not allowed to harm it. You're not allowed to touch that animal. If your totem is a zebra, you're not allowed to hunt the zebra or, or even touch the skin. Um, if your totem is the elephant, you're not allowed to kill the elephant. I mean, in Botswana, for example, I mean, the elephant is, in certain groupings of people highly regarded that they won't kill the elephant. They regard elephant as human animals. They say, they say there, and I've heard it more than once. I did a census around Botswana, Zimbabwe, and South Africa years and years and years ago uh, of elephant movement corridors. And how often I heard local people say, no, elephants are people. They, they know that they will, in grief, they will cry salt tears, that they bury or cover their dead that the females have breasts where we do, you know, this sort of thing. And, and they, to eat an elephant would be like on par with cannibalism. My name in Botswana that the local people gave me was Radi Tau, which means the father of lions or the lion man, 
Blackburn once I had to give a I gave a presentation it was a privilege to do this to the then president of Botswana the presidents of Botswana are always known as Tautuna which means the biggest lion so it was quite strange meeting the president and he says ah oh, Radi Tal, lovely to meet you. And I was replying back to him, thank you very much, so Tautuna, which is the biggest lion. So that's how highly regarded, traditionally, culturally, lions are. But lions can be a problem, obviously, because they kill people's cattle. But we've got to find, imbued in the solution to the conflict, the mitigation, we've got to have this element of the cultural and spiritual going back into it. Yeah. So what are Sakai's the main sort of activities that they do? Is it, is it, is it all about building awareness? Building awareness and basically me talking about it. Right. It's, again, it is a matter of funding again that I can't be more active with Sakai. You know, at least it's there and its philosophy and its mission is there. And uh, no, like I said, Sakai is very, 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 very important to me. Do you know what would be so cool, I think, with something like Sakai is to is to get those stories told, those folklores, mm. those, you know, get the, the tribes talking about, mm. you know, what those totems are and what they mean to them and, you know, get people, get the elders talking about it before the next generation loses those exactly. stories. Um, because that might reignite some passion and some reconnection. We, we keep hearing that our youth are losing their connection mm. to the wild and in Africa, I'm imagining it's no different. Mm. You know, the kids that are growing up in Soweto that have never even been in the wild, mm. these are African kids. Mm. They should have trips to the wild. You see, the thing is, is what we had a problem with here, I mean, in other African countries, they were under colonization for perhaps 100 years. Why we've got even more of a disconnect here between people um, and, and wildlife is that here it was like, under colonization for 400 years. Mm. So I think that has done a lot of an enormous amount of damage in all sorts of different ways. But on the one side, you know, um, South Africa wasn't, to me, when I first came to South Africa, it, was com it wasn't the Africa that I knew, if you know what I mean. This was a different form of Africa. The apartheid Africa, the Africanness had been eroded. So I mean, hardly surprising that people's Africanness in outlook to wildlife was to you know, oh, pretty yeah. much totally eroded, totally gone, yeah. unlike in other parts of Africa. But what is gratifying today is, is seeing the Africanness that has come back into South Africa, be it culture, the arts, or outlook, or whatever. Yeah. So just to close off, Gareth, if you could share some advice or wisdom to a growing disconnected world, what would they be? Again, it really goes back to to Sakai. I mean, there was a lovely saying which has got nothing to do with Africa, but you know, you can see a woman wrote, and I quoted her. I, I wrote a spiritual book a number of years ago called To Walk With Lions, which deals with the seven precepts, commendable precepts of the lion, um, like self-reliance, like um, uh, coexistence, like all sorts of things that we can learn from the lion. And I'm, I'm quoting a lady, uh, a famous writer, oh, what's her name? But she wrote a lovely thing that, you know, you can see the entire universe, the entire world reflected in, in the opening of a flower. We can empathize with everything around us because it resonates with life as we do. And to see to see that life and that spirit in other things. Because once you start empathizing with other life and seeing the 
the reverence in other life, then you start to have sympathy with it. And that sympathy and empathy work together. Because you're seeing, you literally, as the lady wrote, you're seeing part of yourself in that other life. And that, that is the, the cornerstone of, of respect for, for all life, because then you're also actually respecting yourself. I love that. And so how can people support your work? How can they support the sequel? How can they support you here in Nizana? We're just about, just for the listeners' benefit, we're just about to go on the secret Nizana elephants experience, which we're very excited about. But where, where can they find you and support you, Gareth? They can, I mean, people can find me on, um, on, on my website. Very simple. I'm just GarethPatterson.com. That I do regular updates, what's going on with the books and with the uh, Secret Elephants Forest experience. And then Sakai has its own um, website. That's SakaiAfrica.com as well um, and also on Facebook um, but very importantly with the with the crowdfunding raising funding for the beyond the secret elephants um, research and book project um, to go on to the platform uh, backer buddy brilliant we'll put all those put links in, in, in the description much appreciated let's go out there and see what's been going on in the elephant secret world so what can we expect from this experience what yeah. are we going to go look for I'm going to show you where, where this young bull um, severely bashed up a gate <laughs> three times in one week. Oh, in no. one week, because it happens every year, he bashed down seven gates, I think it was, in one week. But there used to be an official Garden Route National Park sign. It's, there's, no get, there's no fences or anything here, but the sign stands at the boundary. Now, every year he'd knock it down and then the parks officials will take it off and if they can find it and then panel beat it and put, put it back up. Last year he made such a thorough job of it they couldn't replace it because he put two tusks straight through the sign. Oh wow. my goodness. Yes. He so, was in serious musk. Go. His hormones were really raging. Yeah. <laughs> well thank you so much Gareth. Thank you for your time Joy and I've thoroughly enjoyed this chat and uh, let's, let's get out there and have yeah. a look see what's going on. It's always a treat and every time you go out there you never know what's going to happen. Gareth is an inspiration. To dedicate one's life to diminishing populations of Africa's wildlife is truly remarkable. We hope you enjoyed hearing his stories as much as we did. If you'd like to read the sequel to The Secret Elephants and would like to help make it a reality, you'll find the relevant links to Gareth's work in our show notes. You can also find Gareth's books online or at all major bookshops in South Africa. Listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast, please go ahead and leave us a review. We'd love to know that you're finding it of value. Thanks for listening and see you next week.